Welcome, Dr. Chris Smith, uh, the Naked Scientist, lecturer at the University of Cambridge. I'm not going to take you back to a brief conversation we had at the start of last week's interaction. I'm not talking I'm about not it. talking about it. I thought amnesia would have set in shortly after <laughs> Saturday. What causes uh, amnesia? Well, first of all, if if you can remember things normally and then you can't, the best thing to ask is, well, how do I remember things? And there are a range of ways in which the brain stores information. At the heart of it is a structure called the hippocampus. And this is on both sides of your brain in your temporal lobe. So if you stuck your finger in your ear and carried on going you'd roughly intersect in your brain in the centre with where your hippocampus is on each side. And this is a special structure. The word hippocampus means seahorse, and it's because of the shape of the structure we have in our brain, it does resemble the shape of a seahorse to an extent on each side. And this is a specialised brain area that appears to encode short-term memories. We don't know exactly how it does it, but there's something about the anatomy and the, and the way that the nerve cells are connected together that they are very good at storing short-term memories, short spans of digits, and also helping us to navigate and find our way around. So uniting a range of different stimuli with a, a sense of place in the world. And when we go from A to B, we plan in our heads on a mental map how we get from A to B, and the hippocampus is uniquely and, and intimately bound up in doing that. But that's short-term memory. And if you remove the hippocampus, which has happened, there are people, there's a very classic, famous case of a guy called H.M., who way back in the day had intractable epilepsy, and his epileptic seizures were stemming from damage to that region of the brain. So surgeons, to help his epilepsy, took that region out, and he went into a state of what we call antrograde amnesia, where he couldn't make any new memories. He existed in a world where he permanently described himself as having just woken up. And he kept a diary, and in his diary he would continuously say, I've just woken up, because he couldn't remember anything, so he assumed he must have just dozed off. But if you asked him about his life prior to having his hippocampus removed on each side, he would give very vivid and thorough accounts. So therefore, short-term memory and the formation of new memory seems to involve this structure, the hippocampus, but long-term memory seems to be elsewhere in the brain, and indeed subsequent brain imaging studies and so on have shown that different sectors of the brain do store long-term memories, and they store different types of long-term memories. So we have a region of the brain that's purely for faces. So the superior temporal gyrus, the upper part of your temporal lobe, you have a face area there, and this seems to be uniquely and intimately involved in recalling who your grandmother is and when you're shown a photograph of somebody you recognize it because that region of your brain has a catalogue of the faces you've seen in it isn't that amazing other regions of the brain store music other regions of the brain seem to be involved in motor memory and making movements and typing your name on a computer keyboard so once you're out of the hippocampus you're storing information in connections and networks of neurons and the different sorts of memories seem to be farmed out to different sorts of the brain so you can lose and have amnesia for different sorts of memories if you damage those different regions of the brain. So let's move on. We've got John Alves. Uh, John Alves has got a voice note for you. Let's take a listen. Hi, Clarence. Good morning. Um, I've got a question for Dr. Chris Smith. Um, I've got a parrot at home, and uh, my neighbor's dog barks on and on. Now the parrot is mimicking the dog to perfection. But I've noticed when the parrot starts barking like the dog, and if I have a look at the dog through my window, 
there is no reaction whatsoever when my parrot starts barking like the dog. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd just like to know why, why is that? I mean, surely if the parrot starts barking vigorously, like the dog does, there's no reaction by the dog. The ears don't go up, the, the eyes don't, he doesn't even move. You'll be sitting there or lying there and that is it. So I'd like to know, is it for the dog a different type of sound or is it, I don't know, I'd like to know, why has a dog got no reaction when my parrot starts mimicking the dog's bark? Oh, brilliant That's question. Parents, great show. Thanks, Dr. Chris. Yeah, you're welcome, and thanks for the kind words. I don't know precisely the answer to this, but I'll hazard a guess, which is the dog is not being fooled. And what I mean by this is dogs have far more sensitive and they have a higher range, across a range of frequencies of hearing than humans do. And while the parrot may be producing a sound which to us sounds like a good facsimile of a dog bark, there may be missing frequencies and elements there that we can't hear that it's getting wrong that the dog can hear and thinks, nah, that's not a dog. (laughs) That could be it. The other thing is that because the dog made the sound and it's hearing itself coming back, the dogs are a bit stupid. My dog is nuts. And it might be that the dog thinks it's just hearing itself and so it's unsurprised by its own barking it doesn't regard it as another dog it could be that as well Uh, a funny story about a parrot my brother uh, who's a bit of a trickster sometimes he taught his friend's parrot to mimic a staff member at a place where they both worked with a particular verbal vocal tick that another staff member had that was particularly annoying. A good example of this, in some ways, when you listen to certain people speaking and they insert or feel compelled to insert the word like every other word in a sentence, or they start most of their sentences with the word so, it becomes irritating, doesn't it, if you're subjected to it for a very long time? Well, it wasn't that word, but it was another particular vocal tick that this person had and my brother taught the parrot to keep doing this and and they knew who it was because they rang him up in the night and said what have you done to this parrot it keeps on sounding like we're at work and uh, so they never got any respite when they came home from work from this person who was a, a sort of senior manager who used to used to really wind them up so parrots are great but i don't know exactly why the dog wasn't fooled but i suspect it's because the dog knew it was either listening to itself or it wasn't listening to another dog yeah, okay, so let's go on to this one. Hi, Naked Scientist. What causes global transient amnesia? Well, again, this is one of these things where it's a psychiatric condition where a person will suddenly present with uh, the inability to remember things. They'll they'll not know where they are, who they are. They won't give any coherent history as to how they got there. There's a range of reasons why this can happen. Sometimes it can be functional. In other words, a person who doesn't actually have something specifically wrong with their brain, but they're behaving that way. So a person can say that's the case, and it's not the case. So you always have to try and disentangle that from the equation, because some people do do that. Sometimes it can be because something has gone wrong with the blood supply to the brain. Strokes. If you have a stroke to certain areas of the brain, it can affect behaviour, it can cause a confusional state and it can interrupt your ability to either form or retrieve memories. And so a person who's got that kind of problem, that could be happening. There are also inflammatory or autoimmune conditions, encephalitis and infection, which can affect the way the nervous system behaves and performs and this can cause acute confusional states as well. So you've got to disentangle all of that 
as well as someone may have taken something. Some drugs can affect behaviour or affect the ability to form and retrieve memories temporarily. So when a person presents with loss of memory all of a sudden, one has to uh, disentangle all of these possible things and then try and get to the bottom of it. Then we have a voice note in Azuki. Another question. Uh, okay, so Joe's finding it. Right, let's take a listen. Hi, Clarence and Dr. Chris. So I've got a bit of an obsession with pineapple, and I believe um, it contains bromelain, and it's said that um, pineapple is basically the only fruit that eats you while you're eating it. So sometimes I do eat past the pain. So what is the worst that could happen from eating too much pineapple? Woo. Well, apart from obviously it uh, hitting your pocket, because it's not cheap all the time to do that. But what Zook is referring to is bromelain, which is the substance which we also use as meat tenderizer. Pineapple, locked up inside the cells, contains this enzyme, bromelain, which is a protease, breaks down proteins. And why she's saying it eats you when you're eating it is when you crunch into fresh, it's got to be fresh because the tin stuff has had all this deactivated. But if it's fresh pineapple, when you crunch into the cells, you bust open the packages inside the cells where this stuff is locked away safely so it doesn't eat the pineapple from within. And it liberates the enzyme, which is transiently active in your mouth, and it will actually degrade the sum of the proteins in your mouth and it makes your mouth feel prickly and a bit tender after you've eaten or been exposed to a lot of it and that's why you can tenderize meat with it because you put it on your steak and it will break down the meat proteins the collagen which is in there and some of the other protein in the meat as well and if you remove some of the connective tissue it makes the meat more tender it falls apart more easily when you eat it um it shouldn't be harmful as long as you were to really, really overdo it because by the time you start to notice your mouth being prickly, you've probably had your fill and you've probably gone past the point where you're no longer hungry anyway. But in theory, if you kept doing that, you, you do cause some breakdown of the connective tissue in your mouth. You will cause sore places and you could get ulcers and they, they could become infected. So I suppose your body would tell you itself if you overdid it in that respect. But don't forget also pineapple is, is acidic and there's a lot of sugar in there. So it's not going to do your teeth any good either if you were to do too much pineapple. A question for the Naked Scientist. Uh, the question reads, uh, why is it so difficult to lose weight while going through menopause and what makes you put on weight so differently uh, to before menopause? Thank you so much. I think there's a range of things to consider here, but it's it's a big problem. And if you look at the world population, about half the world population are obese now or getting that way. And this includes in places where people are malnourished. And you might think, well, malnourishment means not enough calories, but actually it's not malnourishment from the perspective of not enough calories. It's malnourishment from the respect of all the wrong sorts of calories. And this probably underpins what is driving this problem. Because if we were to wind the clock back about 50 years, then almost nobody, fewer than 10% of the world population, was obese. And in just this generation, we've seen it go from those very small numbers, single numbers of percent, through to almost half. Now, no one has evolved genetically in that time. We're genetically the same. So something about the way our genes that we do have are interacting with the environment we live in must account for this. It must be the environment we're in which has changed and that has made it more likely that we're going to become obese. 
Now, one of the things which has changed is what we do for a living. And the vast majority of people, if you were to look at a population of most countries about 50 years ago, nearly half the population were doing jobs that were manual. They had a very strong physical element to those jobs. And if you're physically very active, you build a lot of lean tissue, muscle, and that is where you burn your calories. The more lean tissue you've got, the higher your metabolic rate, therefore the higher your calorie burn rate. In the modern era, far more of the population, probably about 40%, do sedentary jobs. We spend a lot of time sitting down and only about 5% of the population are on their feet all day doing manual physical things. So part of the activity that we do in a day is almost certainly contributing. As we get older, you tend to find you go into jobs which are less physically demanding just because we're getting older. So you become more predestined to get obese or gain weight if you get as you get older if you're at risk anyway and also with menopause comes changes to your metabolism and this also affects men because as your sex hormones and in menopause this is a loss of estrogen from the body because the estrogen that comes from the ovary is being produced in much smaller quantities and you start to rely on sources of estrogen from other other tissues in the body in men we do lose testosterone as well these sex hormones do have a driving effect on your metabolism and your metabolism will shift in response to a drop and that also shifts your risk of gaining weight. So there's a range of different reasons why this can happen. It's partly activity, it's partly your genes because some people are born with genes that mean they're much better at storing energy given half the chance than others and it's what's in the environment, how active you are, what sorts of foods you eat and in what sorts of quantities and how your metabolism interacts with those foods. The other thing that happens as we get older is we lose the brown fat, which we have in babies all over the place to keep them warm, but in adults between our shoulder blades and around the the big blood vessels in the centre of the body. Brown fat, unlike white fat, which is what you've got if you sort of pinch your bum, that's white fat that you're pinching, brown fat is very highly vascularised really high metabolic rate and instead of storing energy it burns energy with a vengeance and produces lots of heat and it's how we keep ourselves warm it's our central heating that does diminish with age and so therefore your ability to turn calories into heat that you can throw away is also lost so once you take all those things into account and the fact that you're no longer menstruating which takes quite a lot of energy as well as a young woman once you get older that stops All these opportunities to waste calories are going away. And as a result, if you carry on doing the same or less, eating the same or more, but effectively burning off less energy, you do tend to store more of it as fat. Okay, somebody wants you to drill down on the health benefits of pineapples. They suggest that it eats up your mucus if you have flu. It clears sinuses. It can also munch up floaters in your eyes. Katie wants you to confirm that. Oh, hi, Katie. Well, first of all, think about the fact that what you put in your mouth does have to be filtered before it goes anywhere else in your body. You have a filter, which is the lining of your intestines. There's a barrier there, which is both an anatomical barrier, there's a chemical barrier, and there's also a bacterial barrier, because your microbes that live on you and in you, your microbiome, they're all over the tissue in your intestines as well. So they see your dinner before you do. So anything you eat has got to pass through all of those barriers, and then through the liver which also does a a chemical clean-up on what you take into your body before it goes anywhere else in your body via the blood. So only a very limited and carefully curated repertoire of molecules that are originally in your food end up in your bloodstream. And those include the sugars, 
and mostly amino acids, but some very short connections or chains of amino acids, dime, tripeptides, those go through. So therefore, the ability of this stuff to get beyond your intestines and go elsewhere in your body and change the way that different tissues work is quite limited. And that's for a good reason, because you don't want all the chemicals that are in food getting to all of the tissues in your body, which would upset the delicate biochemical apple cart in those regions. That said, having a healthy diet, having calories, and also some of the micronutrients and vitamins, including vitamin C, which are in fruits and vegetables and B vitamins, is really important for good health. And so it's certainly true that some of the chemical constituents will end up influencing how our tissues work. That's absolutely true. But I'd be very careful about assuming you can clear up lots of health conditions this way. It, it does break down mucus because mucus has got a lot of protein in it and the proteases in pineapple will break down mucus. And so people who are going to sing or speak and have a, a claggy throat will sometimes eat bits of pineapple before they have to go and give a speech or sing because they do find it does clear away excess mucus. But beyond the direct effects locally in the mouth and then down into the tummy, I'd be surprised if there, there are any more distant interactions than that. Uh, and we're going to have to go to news, but a big thank you. The Naked Scientist every Friday just after 9.30, right here on Views and News.